Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm super excited to have Michael Platt. Uh, Michael, welcome. And I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoy your book. I thought it was incredibly awesome um, work that you've done. Thanks, Mark. Uh, it's great to be here. I really appreciate the uh, positive feedback on the book. It's really nice to hear. So, so uh, Michael, uh, and, I, and I'm thrilled that we have you for a full hour. Uh, please tell us about your professional background, especially all the departments at Penn you're connected with in areas of research and consulting work that you do. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a little bit of a mouthful. So I'm a uh, I, I have one of these great mucky-muck professorships here where I'm a university professor appointed in, in three different schools. So in the School of Medicine, the Department of Neuroscience, in the College of Arts and Sciences, in the Psychology Department, and also in the Marketing Department at Wharton. And I uh, direct the Wharton um, Neuroscience Initiative, which is our, our sort of attempt to go big uh, and go bold and put neuroscience into, the, uh, you know, into business education and practice. But my background, I have, you know, what's funny is I don't have any paper credentials in any of these fields. So my, my undergraduate and grad PhD degrees are in anthropology. Uh, my PhD came from here at Penn. Um, and, uh, and then I did a postdoctoral fellowship in neuroscience, but I don't have a single piece of paper that, um, says that I can actually do any of this stuff. Well, you're very good at coalescing all the other great experts all over the world in this space in your book, uh, which makes it a book that you just can't uh, put down. And even if you don't know much about neuroscience, once you start reading this book, uh, the information you get, especially if you're a leader for business, is so applicable in so many different areas. Uh, why did you write this book? Well, because, you know, I felt like I was sleeping too late and I preferred to, you know, cut an hour off and get up at 4 a.m. so I could start writing instead of 5. No, it was, it, it was, I've always wanted to write a book that would be for, uh, for non-academics. Um, and in this case, it was, you know, I felt like the time was right to uh, take the insights and um, the implications of the technology in neuroscience and try to make it accessible for people in business to try to uh, improve the business they do to make it more effective, effective, more efficient, and more humane, but also to just put get neuroscience out of the lab and the clinic and help to put it into the hands of people so they could use it to improve their own lives and the lives of their families. So that was really um, the genesis behind that book. And, uh, and I had a lot of help from Morton Press. They're really fantastic people on uh, helping that along. Uh, for those of us who really don't understand the total concept of neuroscience, what is it? You know, it's it's funny. This is sort of a philosophical uh, question in the field. So for some people, it really means you must be studying some process directly in the brain. Um, my own view is uh, quite a bit um, broader. So it's really uh, trying to, it's, it's everything that we are and we do um, biologically. Um, that ultimately gets writ out in behavior and in our experience. And so, um, you know, the, the tools that people tend to associate with neuroscience, like for human neuroscience, would be brain imaging, which you know yields these pretty pictures of, of brightly colored blobs on the brain, telling you this area is the one involved in decision making or whatnot. But um, but there are other ways to to get insight into what's happening in the brain, which which are much more accessible and scalable. Uh, and more relevant for use in business. So even, you know, so so measuring brain activity outside the head using wearable uh, devices, which we've developed in the lab, and there, there are others that are commercially available, even uh, a camera pointed at your eyes. Even now we're developing applications where we can use a webcam to track where people are looking on a screen. Uh, and where you look, you know, actually tells us a lot about what you're going to do and what you're going to choose 
and a lot of the processes that are going on in your head. So for business purposes, neuroscience gives us an ability to kind of look underneath the hood and say, what, what can we understand about what's driving human behavior, human decision-making, human interaction uh, that goes beyond what people can state? And, you know, the big issue there is that traditional approaches rely on asking people questions, giving them surveys. And we know that that's not very accurate often because what we can access in terms of what's going on in heads is not not very much. And what we want to report is sometimes not very much. Uh, and even the but just the process of asking somebody can change uh, those things that are happening in their heads. So that's what neuroscience really gives us that's new uh, on the block. You know, throughout the book, I was amazed about all the technology that's being used. And I was really wondering, how accurate are these brain measuring devices and what are all the non-healthcare uses these machines can and are being used for? Well, there's a spectrum of precision, right? So, and I can show you a graph that would go from like, you know, a micrometer, you know, millionth of a meter to a thousandth of a meter to meters, you know, in the brain and body, as well as time scales from thousandths of a second to hours, days, et cetera. And so each technology lives in that space somewhere. Uh, kind of the gold standard, if you wanted to know what was happening in a particular part of the brain, moment to moment in time, you'd actually have a sensor in that part of the brain. Typically, we don't do that in people, you know, for, for obvious ethical and practical reasons, you might do that in animals, sometimes in human patients. And so in terms of non-invasive methods, you know, there's a number in our toolkit, like, MRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, <clears throat> is great uh, in terms of spatial localization. Uh, so it can tell us kind of what's happening. It's kind of sluggish in terms of um, how temporally precise it is because it's a blood flow measure. The back, you know, the, the sort of drawback of brain imaging like, like MRIs, you cost millions of dollars to buy an MRI machine. You've got to go to an academic medical center and you have to lie down inside of this tube for an hour and you can't, you know, it's not something that's portable. It's not something that you can take uh, and try to understand uh, a consumer's experience while they're you know, shopping uh, in a mall or something like that. So, you know, there's a whole range of technologies, other technologies like, like wearable EEG, which we can put on outside the head gives us great temporal precision. So we can see moment to moment changes uh, in various processes in the brain, but it doesn't tell us a lot about where things are happening. And as you, kind of take your lens outward and rely on things like eye tracking or even heart rate measurements. It gives us a little bit of insight into what's happening in the brain, but there you're much more distal, right? So you're farther away from the actual seat of what's going on. So your, your friend Mark Dewey has gotten his students. Maybe that's uh, why we have so many people want to hear you today because he made it required by his students to listen to you today. But Mark has asked, uh, good for the quants among us, bad for the socially inclined and entrepreneurs that rely on dynamic networks. What are your suggestions for social entrepreneurs of emerging from university today? So is this a question about kind of remote work uh, and yeah, what we've all been doing? Like, yes. Yeah. Now, this is like, you know, obviously we're all, uh, on the one hand, you know, how much greater is it to be in 2020 or 2021 with the technology we have? This pandemic was 20 years ago, we would have been uh, in pretty bad shape in terms of our ability to work remotely and to connect with people. So fantastic. On the other hand, the technology still leaves something to be desired. So it's, you know, it presents a lot of challenges. Uh, it can be fatiguing. It's probably fatiguing because each of you is in a tiny little box which, and, and you're in 2D and uh, depending on how good your camera is, I don't, I can't really see what's going on in terms of where you're looking or, or, you know, changes in facial expression or other, other things that other signals that might be there, um, that normally our brains would, uh, automatically pick up on. And we would be, you know, unaware of it, but it would help us to guide our behavior. So, um, really challenging the offset between the camera on your, uh, you know, on your computer monitor, uh, and where people, the people you're trying to look at are. So it's almost impossible to make eye contact. So I can try to fake it. Like, <laughs> So those are the challenges, right? And we're trying to understand right now um, what's different in the brain given these challenges. So we 
before the pandemic hit, we had been running a bunch of studies where we were measuring brain activity and bodily uh, physiological signals in people who were uh, doing something like this, but in the real world. So they're face-to-face interactions. Uh, they might be having a conversation or we might have a, a, a committee uh, deliberating over a job candidate. And so we're trying to do that um, now online. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of challenges to doing that, but it could really give us some insights into what's different about this really biologically. And once we understand that, how can we improve the technology to try to make this feel a little bit more natural, to, uh, to give our brains kind of what our brains evolved and developed, right, to, to need the kind of data they need to, to interact in a much more seamless, natural way. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll finish this before the pandemic is over. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's over quickly, but, uh, you know, those insights will, will probably be important as, as many companies look to stay hybrid, uh, in the future. Yeah, I, I was wondering how much has COVID affected people because you write in your book about the need to actually be social. And I hear my sister's head of HR for a global company, and she says the people under 35, they like to stay home. The people over 35 want to come back to work. But you said uh, in your book that there's research that shows that you kind of regress um, by not having the social interaction. And I guess that's also the concern for getting kids back to school. That's definitely a concern. So we know that, we know a couple of things, right? That the, there is something in our brains that in, in neuroscience we call the social brain network. It's a, it's a network of brain areas that is more or less dedicated to managing our connections with other people, basically figuring out who's there, um, what are their emotional states, um, are they trustworthy, you know, what do they want, what do they need, what do they know, and that kind of informs our behavior, right, and the way we interact with them in a very, very fluid, spontaneous way for most people. Uh, that network, right, has kind of a critical period when you're growing up, as you're, you know, moving from infancy to childhood to adolescence. And that critical period is really important for getting the data and reinforcing the pathways that will allow you to have a high-functioning social brain network when you when you grow up and when you're an adult and when you go on into the working world. Um, so we, you know, this is a big experiment we're running on our kids. Uh, I think it stands to reason that um, it could, it won't necessarily be good uh, for them, and we don't know how what it will take to catch up. We do know that our brains and our social brain networks, in particular are flexible and that they respond to use like a muscle. So if you exercise your social brain, it'll actually change physically. <clears throat> so the, the, the areas will get thicker uh, and the connection between them will get um, more functional. They'll become healthier pathways. And we know that the bigger and better connected your social brain network is, the better you do in social interactions, the more friends you have. So, you know, you can kind of connect all those dots and say that, like, this is one good reason we need to get kids back into school. Um, it's going to be, I think, critical for coming back to the office for people to really be able to develop and leverage the social connections that are so important for business, but also for life. Um, because we also know that the, you know, the more friends you have, the, the longer, healthier, happier life you live in general. So, and the converse of that is people who are extremely lonely, you know, that's like smoking a pack of cigarettes. So in terms of its impact on your well-being uh, and even, you know, your, your how long you live. So, um, I, you know, this is a really important time. And I think it's, you know, really important to get out of this pandemic as quickly as possible. And um, so we can go back uh, at least partially to having real life social interactions. So based on what you just described, I must be both an Einstein and a triathlete for all the people I'm talking to all the time. <laughs> so uh, your friend also writes, uh, Steve Jobs was famous for his long walks around along the streets of Palo Alto, close to his home. Creativity has improved, it seems, as well as cognitive function, presumably. It's all about increased blood circulation. So would running or obstacle course challenges do the same trick? And should companies mandate a minimum level of activity to be recorded on a Fitbit? 
Well, there's two there's two pieces to this. One is the benefits of physical exercise for brain health and, and mental health. And absolutely, unequivocally, the best thing you can do for your brain uh, is to physically exercise. It reduces inflammation, improves circulation, has all kind, it reduces stress. So, uh, you know, if you want to be at your best and you want your brain to stay healthy for a long time, you need physical exercise. Mental exercise is also critically important uh, as well. But the other part about the in, in this comment about creativity, which I think is 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 really interesting, um, you know, Steve Jobs taking long walks. Um, it's clear from what we know about the brain that you know we have a dedic relatively dedicated network in the brain that is involved in thinking outside the box, generating new ideas, exploring new opportunities. And that network turned off more or less, it's turned way down when we're executing routine tasks, when we're focused on, you know, like crunching numbers, when we're focused on email, uh, we're sitting in front of a computer, that uh, kind of innovative brain network, thinking outside the box brain network is shut way down. And so the implication is you need to disengage, go for a walk, in order to allow that, um, that brain network to kind of come back online. And uh, it's, the studies have not been done yet to measure brain activity in people while they're out walking around. That's something that we have we planned to do last year. It's on hold since the pandemic. But you know, I think it, that's what we'll see because the circumstantial kind of behavioral evidence is that going out for a walk, when you come back, you actually are in a more creative brain state. You're better able to come up with new ideas. And you know, I you know, I bet you dollars to donuts that that's because this innovation network in the brain has been liberated, right, from doing routine tasks. And we know that when you do that, people come up with new ideas. How do you think companies will deal with hybrid work models? I've heard rumors that some companies will promote more work at home opportunities to save on dollars and on uh, real estate costs. That's what I hear too. Uh, I can't remember the numbers, but they're pretty high in terms of Companies who expect to uh, to pursue a hybrid uh, model, um, you know, I think that. Look, I understand the cost savings. That's great, and actually, the data is really interesting. Uh, there's a Wharton study that came out in January, out of the uh, management department, that was a survey. So, okay, so but uh, surveyed uh, hundreds of companies, and um, what they found was that um, <clears throat> leaders, CEOs, were reporting that their employees were actually as productive or more productive than they had been prior to the pandemic, prior to working remotely. And that makes sense, right? So people cut people's commute out. Uh, they, uh, they don't have distractions. Like they don't have other people around distracting them. So in some ways it's easier to focus and get things done. The, you know, the flip side of that is that these same leaders report that innovation is way down. Okay, and presumably we think innovation is way down because, uh, and and this was borne up by some of the survey data because you don't have the interactions with people, the water cooler talk, the bumping into each other, the going to the whiteboard that would stimulate um, innovation. And in fact, we know that this innovation network in the brain partially overlaps with the social brain network. Right, because uh, when we're dealing with other people, that's a time when we need to spin out a lot of new scenarios about how that could end. And so, uh, being with other people and working with other people seems to promote creativity and innovation. And when we're working at home, that's that's a lot more challenging. So, the hybrid model, perhaps there will be certain job types, right, that will be more effectively done remotely. And other job types that will, you know, benefit from people being co-localized, so they they can strategize and innovate together. Um, yeah, that I mean, and I think that's that's great for efficiency. I still would like to see the opportunity for everybody to have some moment back in the office, so that because the other thing that we're seeing is is a decline in kind of shared identity and uh, the the sort of belonging to a you know clear corporate culture. And that's, I think, much more difficult to implement uh, online, right? It's just, it's just going to happen much more organically when people are in the same place. 
Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later, but one of the, probably one of the questions I'm asking now is one of the reasons that they saw in the title of the, this uh, talk. Uh, the myth that we only use 10% of our brain has been debunked, uh, according to your book. Uh, but are Elon Musk, Meg Whitman, Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, all brilliant people in their own ways, able to get more out of their ma brain matter than the rest of us? I mean, how do they do that? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think what you're seeing there, so we've been talking about these different brain networks, right? So we talked about the creativity network, the execution, task execution network. Uh, social brain network. Um, and what you can think of is that each person, you know, when you're born and you come through childhood, you have your dials set at different points. It's like a, an old school graphic equalizer, right? And so your social brain network might be at a seven and your creativity network at a five and your execution network, I don't know, at a five. And as I said before, you can turn the knobs through exercise and other kinds of things, but you can't turn, you know, it doesn't seem like you can turn a one to a 10. So, uh, so each of us is typically going to have our knobs set somewhere on that spectrum, but maybe an Elon Musk, maybe an Oprah Winfrey, uh, has most of those knobs turned way up just by good fortune, good luck, and good exercise, good exercise of those faculties, right? And that's, um, why, uh, hard to say, right? What that means in terms of the brain networks, but it would suggest that they, you know, they've just got them all firing on all cylinders and, you know, they're, they're wired up a little bit more effectively, a little more efficiently. And uh, I would also submit, though, that it probably means there's something else that's dialed down that we just, we're just unaware of. So one thing we do know about brain space, although we've got 80 billion neurons in our brains, it's, uh, there's still limitations. And so when we turn up some functions, that tends to lead to, some, in some cases, to turning down other functions. Uh, and we can talk more about that if you're interested. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and if you wanted to elaborate on this a little bit more, did you want to elaborate? Well, on I mean, this? I could. I mean, so for, you know, a lot of the things that we ask our brains to do, our brains didn't evolve to do, right? So when I talk about the social brain network, that's, that's hardware that's been in place for 25 million years in the primate lineage that we share with our, our primate cousins. Um, and, but things like reading, you know, reading, you know, writing and reading systems didn't weren't developed historically until about 5,000 years ago and only in a very small part of the world. So our brains don't have a dedicated reading and writing network that's evolved to do that. When we learn to read, we actually repurpose a part of our brain that would normally be used to uh, process faces. Okay, so we're we, it shows up, the visual word form area shows up in the same spot in, the, in everybody who learns to read. But it's taking away some of the territory you would normally use to process social information. And there's some data out there um, that suggests that people, for example, who are illiterate as adults actually may be a little bit better at, at recognizing and identifying faces than people who've spent their whole lives reading. Uh, Chuck Daniels asked this question. Hope this isn't a strange question. No question is strange because I ask a lot of them myself. But since our dreams are generated by our brains, does neuroscience study how our dreams impact our brain's decision-making abilities? Uh, it would be hard for me to make a blanket statement that neuroscience does not, but I'm unaware of any studies that have really looked at how dreaming or dreams impact decision-making. So there's a lot of focus on just trying to understand why do we dream? in the first place, what is the purpose? Is it just some after effect of other things that go on during the day or does it serve a really important role? We know that um, at least some of what happens during when we dream is we're sort of replaying some things from our daily life and that's important for uh, cementing that, that information in memory. But clearly that's not all that's going on in the dream because you know I, haven't, I don't fly during the day but I, you know, I fly in my dreams, and so, so that's clearly not a, that's clearly not a, a a memory process at all. Michael, remember, keep this show PG. So whatever you're dreaming about, we want to make sure we keep it PG. Uh, will you please talk about the uh, was it Ko Monkey research and what did you learn from it? Did I say that correctly? K 
Cayo Santiago. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I you know spent a long a lot of time. It's about half of my career's work. Uh, there's an island off the coast of Puerto Rico called Cayo Santiago, and um, it's a really amazing natural laboratory for studying the behavior and biology and social interactions of very close relatives of ours, which are our rhesus macaques. So there were about 400 rhesus macaques that were uh, brought from all over India uh, and South Asia to Cayo in, in um, 1938. And they've been living there ever since. And they're pretty much not disturbed. So unlike a kind of typical primate center, you have a lot of veterinary oversight and, you know, et cetera. You can manage which animals breed with which with whom. These animals just basically are left to their own devices. And so we have, you know, research staff who follow the animals around and record everything that every individual does. So we know who their friends are and, you know, how well they're doing. Um, and we also, uh, once a year, we kind of have a big monkey rodeo for about a month where we round them up. And we can, you know, measure uh, their bodies, you know, uh, muscle mass, you know, their, how flexible their joints are. We can take blood uh, to get DNA from these animals so we can find out not only who's related to whom, but which genes they have. And, you know, they share 98% of their genome with human beings. We can look at gene expression, which genes are being turned on and turned off. We can collect uh, other uh, specimens as well. Microbiome is a huge interest now. Um, and so we were learning a lot from that. And so, you know, we, I, my lab started working at Kyle and I think around 2007. So it's been about 14 years. Um, and we have this, uh, now what we have something that's called the, the Kyle Biobank Research Unit, which, uh, accumulates behavioral data on thousands of animals, um, uh, DNA on about a thousand monkeys. Uh, other kinds of biological samples on hundreds. We've sequenced the genomes of, of several hundred monkeys. And from that, we can begin to try to piece together, you know, what are the kind of biological factors, genetic factors, et cetera, and what are the experiential factors that lead to some monkeys being very socially connected, for example. And um, we know that in monkeys, just like in humans, the more friends and allies a monkey has, the more babies they will have on average, the longer they'll live, you know, just like us, social support is really critical. And we, um, you know, we, we ended up in a position, you know, kind of making lemonade out of lemons, but, you know, we had been working at Kyle for 10 years and then uh, Hurricane Maria hit uh, the island in uh, 2017. So category four massive hurricane, which we know destroyed much of Puerto Rico itself. And, Left the populating three thousand dead, probably, and, and touched off a you know a mental health crisis. But it hit Cayo first, and it leveled Cayo. You know, it, it denuded every tree. It uh, destroyed the water, fresh water collecting systems so that the animals used for drinking. And so this was a huge stressor for these animals. And we've been continuing to study them the four years since. And um, actually, the paper about to come out, but one of the really striking things that we observed is that the response of the monkeys to this intense acute stressor and the ongoing destruction of their habitat, you know, is, and which is something that was unleashed by climate change and people are continuing to um, experience and it's going to become more frequent and more intense. The monkeys' response to this was to become more social. So they, it wasn't like every monkey for himself or herself uh, competing, you know, like you know, Lord of the Flies kind of thing, but rather they were uh, relying on each other, reaching out and making more friends and more, uh, you know, more allies uh, as a means of, we guess, uh, gathering social support. And um, this is really remarkable. It continues to this day. So, you know, we see this in people, you know, following major traumatic events, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, terrorist attacks, but it doesn't last. You know, it's like you see that, you know, everybody's kind of bands together as a community and help each other out for weeks, maybe months. But then it kind of fades away. People kind of put it out of their minds. But, the, you know, they may be living with the aftermath for many, many years. Uh, and yet it's hard to sustain that social uh, support. But, you know, so far what we've seen is, is the monkeys do. And, um, you know, next steps for us are trying to understand 
what is the impact of that social support on um, the biological consequences of this stress, right? Um, which, which in our population monkeys, uh, going through the hurricane is like aging uh, half a year to a year. And for monkeys wow. to be 20 years old, that's a big deal. But there's variation in that, right? So some monkeys were were relatively protective and other monkeys were much more vulnerable. So, you know, our hypothesis is that those monkeys who just happen to have the wherewithal to really reach out and make more friends may be the ones who are more protected uh, in the face of that stress. Sounds like we monkeys are more evolved than we are. Well, you know, evolved isn't the term, but they're, they certainly seem more humane than we are, <laughs> which is kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. From the studies I was reading in your book, what do you think is different in the brains of highly disciplined people besides the better uh, neural connections? Is there something else we know about that happens better in brains of highly disciplined people? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, it's not something that we have studied, but uh, I think that there's probably a couple of things that are that are really important. I mean, one would be motivational drive, right? So the ability to persevere, to sustain uh, oneself through you know difficult times. So so I think that's that's important, um, and that kind of goes perhaps part and parcel with people who are able to regulate their emotions and regulate their behavior. So rather than kind of falling prey to the vicissitudes, you know, the ups and downs uh, of life, um, you know, being able to push through that. And I would perhaps add a third, which is um, at least, I don't know if I'm highly disciplined, but I make my bed every day and I've done that since I was a kid. And it's like, and I exercise first thing in the morning. And so it's like, also, I think discipline is about taking that motivation drive and, um, and and ability to regulate and trying to turn a lot of things into habits, effective habits. Because when you do that, you know habits are you know they can be bad, but if you form a good habit, a disciplined habit, then that takes off the the, the cognitive load off of something you have to think about, right? So I don't have to think about these things; I just do them, and it looks like discipline, right? Uh, can you explain situations where people get into accidents or have brain damage and miraculously enough, they end up changing into a better personality where they're more productive, responsible, and overall better functioning? Is there any self-treatment remedies we can take to work out our, our own brain muscles? I think my mom's asking this question about me. <laughs> That's a really, really hard question. I mean, you know, what happens in an individual in their response to some challenge, right? It could probably vary uh, from person to person. It probably, I don't know, probably, but at least in some instances, reflects that it's kind of a wake-up call, right? That says, uh, you know, life doesn't last forever. Um, you know, you have been, perhaps you should actually think about that and get organized and, uh, you know, and understand that your behavior has not been the best for yourself or for your family. So I think that's what we see when that happens. Um, again, how that happens is not so clear, but it is partially at least going to involve that sort of regulation processes and, um, and a bit of uh, awareness uh, as well. So rather than just behaving, kind of reflecting on and being intentional about your behavior. I know I'm not telling you any neuroscience here. I mean, you probably get that from a self-help book, but um, <laughs> but but I but I, st I still think it's right. Do, do, do games like Sudoku? I hope I pronounced that uh, correctly. And crossword puzzles really affect the brain in a positive way. I have two things to say about that. So one is it's better than some alternatives that you could be using your brain for. So, you know, that's fantastic. Like, I, you know, I have a 17, I have three boys, but my 17-year-old boy, he's always got his phone out. I used to be really worried about what he was doing. He's playing chess constantly. So that seems like, you know, when he could be doing something else that might not be great, <laughs> I, I'm pretty happy with that. But in terms of, like, brain training, and this goes along with what we said about the social brain network, it's, it's actually quite specific 
to what you're training on. So if you're training at chess, you're going to get really good at chess, but you won't necessarily get good at something else. And there are brain training apps and games out there that uh, often purport to just improve your general intelligence or your ability to make good decisions. And what we understand from the actual randomized clinical trials, which some of the best have been done here uh, at Penn uh, by friends and colleagues, that um, what happens is you get really good at the game that you're training, but it doesn't generalize to other other activities. So you just become a real pro, you know, <laughs> at whatever that is. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help you in other areas of life. Interesting. You mentioned how important exercise is. How does sleep and its pattern contribute towards creativity and executive brain function? No, another great question. This is like, you know, stump Michael big, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, well, clearly sleep is, is really, really important, right? And I think most people feel like they're not getting uh, enough sleep. And not getting high quality sleep. So, um, sleep is, is critical for performance, whether that's athletic performance, uh, or cognitive performance. You know, Tom Brady, you know, notoriously really goes to bed at nine, nine PM, you know, and, and then gets up at seven or something like that. So, uh, you know, I think we've all had the feeling of, of, um, how, how our own performance falters, uh, when we don't sleep. Um, you know, sleep, it has a number of, really important functions. I mean, it's, it's restful. Um, but what, one of the interesting things we're coming to learn from very provocative and, um, you know, w- was somewhat controversial, but it's becoming better accepted is that when our, when we sleep and when we dream in particular, that's kind of like the, that's like trash day in our brain. So, you know, our brains are creating all, all this trash while we're, uh, awake and active during the day. And this stuff has to be removed from the brain. And there's actually a system for sort of pulling out all of this detritus that we need to get rid of. And if you're not doing that, then that can build up and actually have a, you know, an impact on, on the structure and function of the brain. Uh, the strongest and most accomplished leaders often seem as courageous and brave risk takers, whether it's physical danger or risky choices for executing a new business strategy. Does the brain play a role in attributes like courage and risk-taking? Uh, so I'll answer the second part of that, which is, I think, easier to study in the lab. Courage is a little bit harder to define and harder to study in the lab, I think. But uh, risk-taking has been um, a subject of great interest in neuroeconomics and uh, in the early days of it in the late 1990s, but it's basically... The merging of neuroscience and economics to try to understand how you make decisions. And, and one thing that is very clear is that, you know, some people are highly risk averse. Most people are highly risk averse, but some people are tolerant and some people even uh, embrace risk. And um, so over the last 20 years, we as a field have learned kind of how that happens in the brain. And it involves several processes. So there's the process of um, kind of computing the probabilities with which good things and bad things will happen. So that's one one component that's that's more mathematical. There's another that uh, attributes value, calculates the value of different options, right? And those things come together in the decision-making process. Now, there, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, emotional and motivational systems in the brain, which are there for a very good reason to support decisions that move us toward good things and away from bad things, um, but can kind of, but do also shape this process. We now know that uh, the interactions between those emotional parts of the brain, like the amygdala and the parts of the medial prefrontal cortex, which are involved in calculating the value, the personal subjective value, how much we like one thing versus another, uh, even the wires that just connect those areas vary in strength between people and that predicts risk-taking. So, um, you know, people in whom those wires are really thick tend to be much less risk-tolerant. If you will, they're more afraid of risk. And people who those wires are thinner are much more able to embrace risk. Now, the other part was courage. I'm not sure. I, I You know, I think courage is a whole bunch of things, you know, bundled up. Maybe it's like, you know, risk-tolerance. Uh, it's certainly about perseverance. Um, but what, I, what it made me think of was uh, this 
several studies um, which have indicated that there's a special part in kind of the front of our brains here at the intersection of our fingers, the anterior cingulate, that um, is involved in, in, in higher order processes or in decision making. And what's fascinating is that studies in which patients have had electrodes put in that part of the brain to, to map like seizure foci and things like that. If you deliver electrical stimulation to this part of the brain, patients will report feeling like I'm climbing a mountain, you know, I'm, uh, you know, summiting Everest. I'm feeling like I'm pushing through a brick wall, you know, so it's this, it seems to be really important for this, this drive in this sense of overcoming a challenge, which I think is fascinating. You know, that would be impossible kind of data to get from an animal or even correlational data. Uh, so it's, you know, that, again, that's one of those amazing opportunities to, um, inquire, you know, into the human brain directly, um, which are, you know, few and far between. Um, I was really fascinated by, uh, what your brand experiment with Apple and Samsung phones yielded. Can you please explain what you did and what you learned and how chief marketing officers can benefit from, from this, from this research? Yeah, it's a really fun study. Um, we were uh, very interested in this idea, which is very prevalent in um, marketing, which is that uh, the way that we relate to brands and to um, and to products is using the hardware that we kind of already have in our heads to relate to other people, which makes sense, right? So evolution built this stuff in, uh, and in general, brains don't try to build something new uh, if you can just repurpose something. And so when when we have a strong loyalty to a brand, we're actually literally harnessing our social brain networks to develop a social and emotional connection with a brand in the same way we would with you know, a loved family member. And so we decided to test this idea by bringing, um, we, we focused on smartphones because uh, it's something everybody has and people seem very attached to them. They're like, if you misplace your phone, people are like, oh my God, where's my phone? Um, and, uh, so we brought to the lab, uh, people, uh, who were Apple iPhone users or Samsung Galaxy users. Um, and we brought them in the lab and we had them lie in the MRI machine. And we, uh, first of all, we asked them to, you know, standard kind of marketing, uh, questions like, you know, how much do you identify with <clears throat> your smartphone brand? How loyal are you to your smartphone brand? You know, and a whole bunch of other things like that. How much do you like it? Blah, blah, blah. How much would you pay for it? Uh, and then, um, and then when the, while these, um, customers were lying, while these subjects were lying in the MRI machine, we presented them with information about either their brand or the other brand. So they might see something that said like, Oh, you know, Apple's profit soared or, you know, Samsung phone exploded on the plane. You know, not quite that bad, but they would see good, bad and neutral news about both of the brands. And then we asked them to indicate how they felt about that. Okay. And what was interesting, first of all, in terms of self-report, which is a standard, you know, marketing measurement, you're asking people questions. Uh, Apple users said, you know, they felt good when they heard good news about Apple. They felt bad when they heard bad news about Apple. And they didn't feel so much for Samsung. And Samsung, yeah, and Samsung users said, I feel good when I hear good news about Samsung, bad, bad news about Samsung. And then they also shared this. Interesting shot in Freud effect, which is for reverse empathy. They felt good when they heard bad news about Apple and bad when they heard good news about Apple, which was different from what we saw in the Apple users. So the moment of truth was when we actually looked under the hood, we used brain imaging to look at what was going on inside while in their heads, while they were seeing good and bad news about their brand or the other brand. And in Apple uh, customers, we saw exactly what their self-reports said. So when they uh, read good news about Apple, parts of the brain are involved in reward and feeling, uh, you know, positive empathy for a, a loved one were active. And when they uh, saw bad news about Apple, they we see areas recruiting that are involved in pain and empathy for the pain of a loved one, and nothing for Samsung. Now we look at the brains of Samsung uh, <laughs> customers, and it was pretty striking because there was basically nothing going on. In response, here's a... no, 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 no. There's no, no, nothing going on in terms of like empathy. Uh, for I Samsung. use a Samsung phone. What are you okay. telling me? But we saw this reverse empathy for Apple. So we saw evidence of pain uh, in response to good news about Apple, and evidence of joy 
uh, in response to um, bad news about Apple. And so that's already interesting and surprising because it tells us there isn't always a one-to-one correspondence between what people say. If you're a marketer, you know, uh, and you ask people questions, uh, you may not be getting accurate data about what's really going on in their heads. And then the other part of this that, you know, to take it a little further, you know, that our Apple customers, the reason, you know, what, what's going on in their brains is that their brains are treating Apple as an extension of themselves. It's like it's part of their identity, part of their tribe, right? Part of their family. And in Samsung, that's not true at all. It's a device for Samsung users. It is a piece of hardware and that's it. So there's a very different emotional and social connection there. So, and that's despite the fact that they they both reported that both sets of customers reported the same level of identification with their uh, with their smartphone brand, the same level of loyalty, right? And yet, there's something very very different uh, going on in their heads. Um, and you know, I, I think it's there's there's a lot of interesting kind of um, takeaways from that. I think that that many yeah, many of you I'm are probably thinking about thinking maybe about. design affects it, maybe the connection with Steve Jobs affects it. Uh, could you please talk about reading the mind in the eyes? Uh, this is a study doctor by Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, who is related to the famous actor, and learned and how that affects business interaction. Yeah, so uh, it is a very talented family, obviously, the Baron Cohen's. Um, so Simon Baron Cohen has been <clears throat> studying the social brain, and in particular, uh, its impairment in uh, disorders like autism uh, and Asperger's uh, disorder. And so uh, maybe 20 years ago, he developed this um, assessment uh, that is called the reading the mind and the eyes test. And basically, you're just given access to photos of people's eyes of people who are experiencing or expressing particular emotions. And you have to actually select from one out of four different emotions to match to the eyes. Um, <clears throat> and we know that, uh, and then you get a score on this. So maybe you, uh, maybe there are 30 of these questions or something like that. And that people who don't perform so well on this or, or a low performance score would be indicative of, of having some difficulty reading the mind and the eyes. And that shows up in autism and other disorders like schizophrenia, sometimes social anxiety. So, um, so I think it's a really, it's not a, per, you know, there's no perfect metric like this. There are other assessments that you can use, but they're fairly fairly reinforcing of each other in terms of identifying people who are really, really uh, have good, you know, highly developed spontaneous social skills, like perceiving the emotions of other people from limited information and for other people for whom, you know, that's a bit of a struggle. And uh, it's clear that um, the ability to do that is, you know, indicative of having a a highly functioning, you know, well-wired up social brain network, which we know is kind of the key to EQ, to emotional intelligence, which is really important for being uh, a leader. So being able to quickly and spontaneously and accurately <clears throat> understand, you know, what's going on with the people who work for you um, or who work with you uh, will be critical for being able to make good decisions uh, on the fly. Just a quick question. I think it's just a yes or no here. Uh, maybe you've talked about this before, but have you worked with biomedical engineers to use the brain signal te techniques for helping people to control or even operate a machine device? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, brain, machine interface, brain, computer interface has been uh, really important um, and very active in research, not in my lab, but in, in neuroscience in general for the last 20 some years. And it's now possible <clears throat> to endow people who are otherwise paralyzed with the ability to actuate devices so that they can gain more autonomy, so they can interact with a computer or they can drink a cup of coffee if their arms are paralyzed. Um, so huge <clears throat> application space clinically, um, there's tremendous interest in leveraging that knowledge to, uh, to endow people with other kinds of capabilities. So. Um, you know, our, we've worked, done a lot of work with biomedical engineers on the readout side. So we've developed, a, you know, new kind of uh, sensors that allow us to get very accurate uh, data from outside the head, um, which is really important for 
the next step in terms of any BCI or, or BMI to translate that data into um, signals that could interact with devices in the world. Um, it really exciting stuff. Um, and there's a lot of really, uh, really cool activity going on in that space now. I think we're going to see that. That has the potential to fundamentally change the way we work, actually. Scientifically, are men, women and men's brains different? <laughs> it's the third rail. <laughs> the third rail science. <laughs> Don't touch it. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to get into necessarily gender and things like that, but um, but biologically, in terms of sex, uh, there are differences between men, you know, male and female brains. There are small differences, but um, but there's differences that make sense uh, in many cases in terms of some of the um, some of the processes that are more relevant, say, for women in terms of. You know, having children and bonding with uh, their infants and things like that, that would be a little bit different from men. If you're thinking about like brain size or cognitive functions, there the overlap is so great. I mean, on average, a woman's brain is a little smaller than a man's brain because a man is just a bigger bodied creature. Now we know that brain size scales with body size. But, you know, if you control for body size, there's basically no difference. At all. Well, now I can tell my daughters and my sisters and my girlfriend that that isn't the case, that they're not smarter uh, yeah. than me. Well, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Oh, okay. All right. All right. They may very well be. <laughs> how, how do you over, overcome the fear of failure in a person? Is there a way to do that? That's, um, wow, that's a really interesting question. I don't know about the neuroscience of that process. Um, I mean, obviously anything you can do to tone down fear in general and arousal and fear, you know, fear of, there may be different kinds of fear of failure, like fear of failure in front of people, which is sort of a social anxiety, a performance anxiety. So, um, we know that there are strategies where you can become less sensitive to the feedback, uh, or anticipated feedback, uh, from other people. If it's sort of just fear of failure in your job. You know, I'm kind of of two minds of that. I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't seem like a good thing to be in a fear state all the all the time. On the other hand, that can be a powerful motivator to um, you know to work hard uh, and to achieve success. So I wouldn't want to say necessarily I want to turn that all the way off. Uh, shockingly, we not so shockingly, we have 13 different questions still to go. But so we'll hit as many as we can to let you go at one o'clock for your next meeting. Uh, how about a lonely person smoking a pack of cigarettes a day? Double jeopardy? The image of the loner with only his cigarette for company is pervasive in movies and novels. Okay, I'm not going to say that I know what the joint uh, impact of you know smoking and being lonely uh, will be eventually, but it doesn't sound like a great thing for your average person. That said, I want to make sure that it's clear that there are some people who seem to be predisposed and happier being solitary, right, than being um, together with other people. Most human beings are gregarious. Most human beings depend on social interaction with others. Some people are more solitary. Um, you want to make sure we distinguish being lonely from solitary. Lonely means you have the desire to be with other people, but you can't for some reason, right? Solitary, because you like it, is just your nature. Right. And so for that individual, you know, maybe that's not double jeopardy. You know, it's just the smoking. That's bad. Um, I don't think we've addressed this next question. Have you addressed the question of successful people and whether they are neurotypical or neurodivergent? Uh, it's a really good question. I think we need to define um, success. Right. Um, I think there's what we're seeing um, in the corporate sector is growing recognition that uh, neurodiverse people have sort of their own special powers that um, can be very, very useful in um, particular jobs, right? So, um, you know, so for example, people with uh, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, kind of have their creative brains turned up a bit, right? And they're going to potentially be a better fit for jobs that demand creativity 
And so companies that are, you know, and there is this talent crunch you know, that's, you know, barreling at us, uh, are, you know, thinking hard about how to identify different kinds of people who have the phenotype to be uh, a better fit for some of these jobs that are difficult. You know, you basically can't make everybody exactly the same, right? So there, there are people who have different talents. And if we can identify those talents more precisely using neuroscience, then we can help companies do a better job of finding the right talent for the job and people finding the right fit into a company. So it makes, you know, it's sort of a win-win, right? Company does better, bottom line's better, the individual employee's happier, less stressed, less likely to, uh, you know, to move on to another job. So, um, so I think that's, that's where the win is there. Uh, in the book, you write about the power of storytelling. Why is that a powerful tool? Yeah, so we tend to, uh, human beings communicate uh, in stories. Um, we, it's natural for us. And when we are communicating well, actually our, the brain of the speaker and the listener go into synchrony. So they, they literally become kind of, they resonate with each other. And uh, storytelling um, is a good way of kind of getting, getting your brains in and um, that turns out to be really important for other kinds of information that you want to transmit to somebody. So getting everybody on the same page by telling a story that helps them to frame the information you're going to present to them is really critical so that everybody hears it the same way and understands what they all need to do so they can do it together, right, and actually execute. Um, isn't, isn't the ability to interpret impressions cultural? Interpret impressions. Um, there certainly are. So this is an interesting, uh, maybe that's emotions. Um, so there seem to be universal human emotions and universal human facial expressions that are, are tied to those emotions and that you can read uh, in, in people who are from different cultures. Now, the degree to which people sort of try to mask their emotions versus fully express them varies across cultures. Right. And uh, so that that's important to realize. And the second um, the second point I'll make there is that this is a cross-cultural neuroscience is <clears throat> kind of uh, an area that is um, very underdeveloped. So most of what we know uh, in terms of human brain function uh, and cognition, we know we understand from studying the brains of undergraduates at, uh, you know, selected universities. So it's not necessarily representative of the general public or people all over the world. So that's an important caveat to keep in mind. Uh, what's the best nutrient food for brain health? Brain consumes sugar, which is not good for the rest of the body. How should we keep brain healthy via our diets? I hope you're not gonna tell me to cut out my nonpareils because I just can't do it. Oh, I, well, I love nonpareils, the dark chocolate kind. One, me too. One of my favorite desserts. Um, Sure. It's, it's, you know, our brains chew up 20% of the calories that we take in, 20 to 25% of the calories. Uh, and so it's a super energetically expensive organ given it's, it's, you know, how much it weighs relative to the rest of the body. So you need calories. But there's a lot of other things that your brain needs um, that we shouldn't skip on, right? So, uh, so for example, our brains need fat. Um, so there, there's, you know, the, the, the shielding. Uh, that covers the wires in the brain is actually made of fat. Um, our brains need protein in particular. So chemicals that our brains use, manufacture to communicate uh, between neurons and that color and shade all the processes that we talked about here today depend on amino acids that are precursors to making those chemicals in the brain, like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. Those are really critical ones. You need protein to make those chemicals. So if you're not eating protein, and in particular, protein at breakfast seems to be critical for replenishing those chemicals so that, um, and in a way that will affect your performance during the day. So if you're low on tyrosine, which is a precursor to dopamine, which you need from protein in your breakfast, uh, you're, you know, that impairs learning, it impairs decision-making, it impairs interactions with other people. So well-balanced diet, can't go wrong. So before we let you go very quickly, you studied team chemistry. 
Who do you pick for the Super Bowl? Just what team? What should uh, I put my you know, it's a three-point spread, right? Um, I think the Bucks are going to cover the spread, uh, if not win. I mean, this is a really hard one. I, I have spent a long time disliking Tom Brady and the Patriots, but now I really, really respect Tom Brady. <laughs> and, you know, now that he's sort of more into almost my age bracket, I'm for him. So... <laughs> you've got two amazing coaches. You've got two you know, young, you know, young stud quarterback. You know the, the greatest of all time quarterback on the other side. It's going to be a great game. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending the hour with us. I thought it was terrific. Again, everybody should be buying this book because it's so interesting and great for it. Great conversation starter in a lot of areas. But business people could take apart this book and use it for all aspects of running their business. Wish you the best of luck with this. And uh, we hope to see you again when you do your next book. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward to it. Thank you, everybody, for uh, coming on today. Thanks for your questions. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.